Continuing on in the book of Acts, and this morning we'll look at Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Acts 11, 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I want to pray for your word this morning. I want to ask that it would run rapidly, without hindrance, and that it would be glorified. I pray for myself that you would help me to proclaim it clearly as I should. Help me to proclaim it fearlessly. And I pray for your people that you will send your Holy Spirit to grant them illumination so that they have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to obey. And we ask all these things for the sake of Jesus, who is the Word incarnate. Amen. May be seated. A number of years ago, uh, the Gallup Poll Institute conducted a survey, and some of the results were more than a little depressing. Uh, Some of the results uh, showed that 60% of Americans do not know what the Holy Trinity was. 66% couldn't say who delivered the Sermon on the Mount. 79% were unable to name a single Old Testament prophet. Another test of biblical knowledge was given to high school students, and some of them were so confused that they thought Sodom and Gomorrah were lovers, and they thought the Gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luther, and John. J.I. Packer said on one occasion, If I were the devil... One of my first aims would be to stop folks from digging into the Bible. And it seems that Satan has done just that. And could it be that Satan understands better than we do how vital the Word of God is to our Christian life? 
If the devil can keep us from serious Bible study, reading, memorizing, meditating, and application, he in turn can keep us from being mature Christians who fail to realize their full potential. Think of all these promises that are found in God's Word if we adhere to His Word. The Bible promises to make us strong, wise, growing, happy, encouraged, free, hopeful, and holy Christians. And that's just some of the promises. These are no small promises, but none of these promises will be realized if we neglect to open God's Word. If we leave it on a shelf to collect dust like some kind of religious relic, it will do us no good. The Bible is fully capable of transforming our lives. Not only is it capable of transforming our lives, it is capable of transforming churches and even cultures. Martin Luther, the great reformer that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, was asked on one occasion what he had done to cause all that trouble in Germany, meaning the Reformation. This was his answer. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip and my Amstorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. So according to Luther, the only things necessary to transform a culture are the word of God and Wittenberg beer. Well, maybe we don't need to be. As we work our way through the book of Acts, I want you to observe how the New Testament church, we could call it the New Covenant church, is established. And we would be remiss if we did not see the influence of the Word of God. Interspersed all throughout the book of Acts, Dr. Luke highlights the impact of God's Word. Let me give you just a few passages where he brings out the influence. Acts 6-7. He writes, So the Word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Acts 12-24. But the Word of God continued to increase and spread. Acts 13-49. The Word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Acts 19.20 In this way, the Word of the Lord spread widely and grew in great power. Isn't that great? As it goes throughout the book of Acts, it's though Luke is saying the Word of God is starting off small, but it's rolling downhill and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and its impact is becoming greater and greater and greater as it transforms the culture and the world as it goes forth. The preaching of the Gospel is God's instrument to change the nations from darkness to light. God's Word is what transforms people so that they receive forgiveness of sins. And it's not an exaggeration to say that God's whole redemptive plan for the nation rises and falls on the success of His Word. Because that's how God has established it. His whole redemptive purpose for the nations rises and falls on the success of His Word. In our passage before us this morning, we're going to see the establishment of the first Gentile church, the church in Antioch, 
Uh, that's not the Antioch just up the road where some of you came from. Uh, this is the Antioch, some 200 miles north of Jerusalem. And we're going to see this church uh, planted. We're going to see this church mature. And then later on in the book of Acts, we're going to see uh, this church become a launching pad for world missions. Uh, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Now, here's the question I want us to ask. What is necessary to plant, grow, and mature a church? So that it has an impact on the surrounding culture. So that it does send out missionaries into the world. What is necessary? The short answer is the Word of God. Now, while we might say that it's more than the Word of God, let me be very clear that it is certainly not less than the Word of God. The Word of God plants churches, establishes churches, matures churches so that they become all that God wants them to be. And in light of that, I want us to look at our passage this morning and I want us to see the Word of God spoken, the Word of God preached, the Word of God taught, and then the Word of God applied. And as we look at these four points, bear in mind that ancient Antioch was like Las Vegas of today. Uh, perhaps it was even more depraved than Las Vegas of today because the Gospel had not yet come to Antioch. And think of uh, tribes and nations that don't have the Gospel yet. Uh, we think America is struggling morally. Uh, we don't realize that we're still reaping the benefits of God's Word being influenced all throughout this culture. But imagine going to a culture that is, if you will, 100% pagan. In other words, it doesn't even have a hint of Christian influence. And Antioch at this time really was a bastion of immorality and depravity. But God's Word is going to come to this city and it's going to transform it forever. Now, let's begin with the Word of God spoken. Verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the Word to no one except Jews. Luke is taking us back to uh, the stoning of Stephen, if you will recall that. And because of the stoning of Stephen, I think unbelievers were emboldened emboldened in their opposition against the Christians um, so that nothing was holding them back. And they just had an all-out assault going after the Christians. And because of that, basically, from my reading, everybody left Jerusalem except for the apostles. And this passage picks up on that story and it tells us that some of them traveled far and wide. And what did they do as they traveled? They spoke the Word. Isn't that great? They spoke the word wherever they went. Now, I want to underscore that word spoke. doesn't say they were preachers. doesn't say they were missionaries. They just spoke the word. Um, these men who left, uh, women as well, were not educated in the seminary. Uh, they were not trained missionaries. They were, if you will, uh, average Joe, average Jane Christians. Uh, they just loved the Lord, but because of the persecution, they were scattered. Uh, but everywhere they went, they told people 
about Jesus Christ. Now, why did they do that? Because they were excited about what Jesus Christ had done in their lives. <laughs> That's why. When you're excited about something, you talk about it. it it's really that simple. It's not complicated. Uh, if you are excited about the Bears and you're saying, wow, they're having such a good season, they're getting, they're getting off to such a good start, uh, you, just, you just naturally talk about it. No one has to force you to. You don't have to self-consciously think, okay, now after the service, I need to remember to talk to some of the guys in this church about the Bears. Don't miss the game tonight. Just naturally comes out. If you love Jesus Christ, if you're passionate about the things of God, uh, you just naturally talk to anybody and everybody who will listen. And that's what these men and women were doing everywhere they went. They would talk to people about Jesus Christ, even if they might be persecuted where they went. They were willing to risk it. Does that describe you? I need to ask, does that describe me? Am I so passionate about the things of God that I just I look for opportunities to interject it because that's, that's what I want to come out? Do we do that? Are we the evangelist that God is calling us to be? Now, I know some of us have the gift of evangelism and it, it's, it's easier for some. I know some of us are more outgoing than others and it's, it's easier. But, but is, is that our heart's desire? Regardless of our spiritual gifts, regardless of our, of our temper temperament or our personality, is that our heart's desire? I hope it is. You know it's Norbert's heart's desire. He tells people. You know, it's interesting, D. James Kennedy came up with the program Evangelism Explosion that some of you might be familiar with. And he said the number one reason why people don't evangelize like they should is persistent sin in their lives. And isn't that true? And, and I don't have to look any further than my own nose. When, when there's sin in our lives, uh, we don't talk about the things of God. Our mouths are strangely silent. And it's, it's not a great mystery. It really isn't. This isn't complex. This isn't rocket science. When there's sin in our lives and that's got a hold on us, we don't talk about the things of God. But when we confess that and turn away from that and ask God to change our desires and we have godly desires, we're, we're ready to talk to people. If they're open, we're ready to talk to people. And we also need to be in God's presence. John Piper said, The aroma of God will not linger on a person who does not linger in God's presence. Richard Cecil said that the leading defect in Christian ministers is the want of devotional habit. And that's also true of Christian laymen and women. Um, when we're not spending time with God in His Word uh, so that His aroma is upon us, uh, so that our faces radiate like Moses' face radiate when he spent time in God's presence, when that, when that isn't happening in our lives, we don't make a difference. But when that happens, we make a difference wherever we go, And I think we should notice that this church is being planted by ordinary Christians who are on fire for Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, we're told that they 
um, only spoke to Jews. Verse 20, moving on to our next point, the word preached, we're told, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or Greeks, perhaps your translation says, the Gentiles also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, this is great. As I said, uh, Antioch is some 200 miles north of Jerusalem, so they're traveling up the coast. They're talking to people wherever they go, and they come to Antioch, which was a city known for its depravity, and some are only speaking to Jews, but some other men are speaking to the Gentiles as well. And what's fascinating here is that it says they spoke to them, but then it says, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, that's, that's a different Greek word. So, some are just speaking just average conversation. And this preaching is what I'm trying to do and ever endeavoring to do this morning by the Spirit's help. And that's just proclaiming Jesus Christ to anybody and everybody who will listen. Now, what I would love to know at this point, this is another one of these places where I wish we had a little more information in the text. My question is, where were they preaching? There were no churches yet. The Gentiles weren't in the synagogue, so um, this can't be limited to the synagogues. Where were they preaching? My guess is anywhere and everywhere. It reminded me of when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute and some of the guys would go to the train station and they would bring their soapbox. I mean, it wasn't soapbox, but you know what I mean. It's like a soapbox, a little, little pedestal, maybe a mark, milk carton or something. They would stand on that in the train stations. People were coming and going to work and they would be preaching to hundreds. It really is a great thing to see, just proclaiming the gospel as people are going. I think that's what these guys were doing. It says they were preaching the Lord Jesus. And they're just out in public, maybe in the marketplaces as people are buying their pears or whatever. And they're preaching the Lord Jesus. They're not preaching Jesus as the Christ because that wouldn't make any sense to Gentiles. It wouldn't make sense to Jews. But they are preaching Jesus Christ is the Lord. And what happened as they did that? Well, no doubt, the text doesn't tell us, but no doubt some people mocked them. That's what happens, I guarantee you. Just try it. Grab your milk carton. Go out in the public somewhere and just try it. I guarantee you, you will be mocked. But that's not what we're told. Verse 21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Isn't that great? They were preaching... God was with them. His hand was upon them. And as a result, a great many were converted starting this Gentile church. Now, as God's Word goes forth, it needs to be accompanied by His Spirit. It needs to be empowered. Which is why Paul, again and again and again, in his epistles, would plead with the different congregations to pray for him and specifically to pray for him in regard to his preaching and the Word of God. Once again, let me just give you a few examples. Ephesians six nineteen and 20, Paul says, Pray also for me. What does he want prayer for? That whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me 
so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the Gospel. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Twice, Paul says, you know what? As you're praying for other people, pray also for me. And this is what I want you to pray. Pray that I would be bold because I am given to timidity. So pray that whenever I open my mouth, I would be bold and the Word of God would go forth. Remember in Acts 29, the believers prayed, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They didn't pray for deliverance from the persecution. They prayed that they would be bold in the midst of the persecution. In Colossians 4, 3 and 4, Paul asked the Colossians, And pray also for us, too, that God may open a door for our message. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And then he exhorted the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3.1. Finally, brethren, pray also for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly, meaning literally without hindrance, and be glorified. So Paul's saying, pray for me, pray for boldness, pray for clarity, and pray that the word would go forth, that it would break forth, that it would not be stopped. And it would be glorified. Prayer and the Word of God are so important. And can I just say something? Brian mentioned our elders' retreat. Can I, can I ask you to pray for us? Uh, pray for this church. Um, it, it has been a joy every year uh, when we gather together um, to have insight and understanding and to know that you are praying for us. Um, it it makes such a difference. So please, mark your calendars so you don't forget. Uh, jot something down on a sticky note. Uh, you know, mark something in your phone. Whatever, whatever you use to remind you, could you please pray for us? Uh, because prayer really does undergird the church along with God's Word. So again, this is wonderful. A great number believed and they turn to the Lord. So we have a large congregation of newly converted Christians. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church of Jerusalem. I, I call this church the church of the big ears. They hear about everything that's going on, don't they? They hear about everything. So somehow, once again, word got back to them. Um, so they sent Barnabas to Antioch to check this out. And when he saw the grace of God, he was glad. I love that. First of all, this is called the grace of God. When people are saved, when the Word goes forth with power and it has impact, this is the grace of God at work. So we need to praise God. And it's great that he's glad. He's not jealous. Oh, look at all the people converted in this church. It's not happening in my ministry over here. He is glad. Because he loves the Lord. This is, this is great. Pagans are being reached for Jesus Christ. This is wonderful. He is glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Remain faithful to the Lord. Christianity, first and foremost, is not a religion. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's about faithfulness 
to the Lord. In other words, it's, it's as though Barnes is saying, man, you guys are off to a great start. Persevere in the faith. And that really is important. Persevere in the faith. I remember many years ago, I was talking to a pastor and, and he was using this system of evangelism in which you would, you would talk to people and you would share the gospel with them. And if, and if they prayed to receive Christ, the first thing you would say to them is now, if you ever doubt your salvation, you need to know that that's of the devil and you need to dismiss that because you are saved from this time on forth. Never doubt your salvation. And I, th- I said to this dear brother, I said, I think we need to be careful because we, we can't see into their hearts. You want to be careful. And if doubts do come into their life later, uh, maybe the Holy Spirit is bringing doubts into their hearts. Now, at first, that may seem like I'm not rejoicing in their, in their salvation. I am. And here's the, here's the balance. And I think it's right here in this passage. When we see that, we rejoice. We say, this is wonderful. You can't believe how I am excited that you have turned to Jesus Christ. Now continue on and remain faithful to Him. Persevere in the faith, brother. Continue on. Sister, this is what we have biblical right here. New converts. Barnabas is rejoicing over their salvation and he's exhorting them to continue on in the faith. And he did this because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And we're told, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So I think that's in addition to the great number that already came to faith. So God is really doing an incredible work in Antioch. And we're not told the numbers exactly, but we know this. There are a lot of Christians here who need to be discipled. Imagine having hundreds, maybe thousands. Again, we're not told. But even if it's hundreds, Matt, imagine having hundreds of baby Christians. I mean, in the nursery, crying baby Christians. You know, like Jenny McCollum's new baby. You know, tiny, not knowing anything, baby Christians. They don't know the next step. They need to be told everything. This is all new to them. These are raw Christians. They've just taken one step out of paganism. I mean, it's a good step. They've gone right across the line from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But they're new. This is all brand new. They don't understand this. I, I can still remember uh, when Jimmy first became a Christian. It, it was it was so fun. Uh, I, I can remember clear as day. We were we were here at the church. We were cleaning. Uh, at that time, my office was there. My desk is right where Marlena is, and I felt like oppression. I, I can't explain it. I, I just felt oppression. And then a little later. In the evening, Jimmy mentioned he was talking to J.C. and he put his faith in Jesus. And it was so wonderful. Um, we were all talking about when we became Christians. You know, I mentioned when I became a Christian, and Michelle mentioned when she became a Christian. And Jimmy said, "Wow, you guys have been Christians for a long time. I've only been doing this for a couple of hours." <laughs> and I, I never forgot. I was like, out of the mouths of babies. It was the funniest thing. I'll never forget. I've only been doing this for a couple of hours. You know, he just had this aware. I'm a brand new Christian. That, that's how these 
folks in Antioch, they're brand new Christians. Now, we've only been doing this for a couple of days. We, we have no idea what we're doing. Barnabas, what should we do? And he's surrounded by hundreds. Barnabas, what should we do? Tell us what to do next. Teach us. Barnabas, Barnabas, help us out. And Barnabas is going, oh, this, this is too much. So what does Barnabas do? He says, I need help. Who can help me? Ah, wait a second. About eight to ten years ago, Saul was converted. And and may, this is reading between the lines a little bit. I, I admit it. But maybe Barnabas was thinking, now when Saul was converted, the disciples wouldn't accept him. But I accepted him and I brought him to the disciples so that they would see that he truly is converted. He owes me one. <laughs> So I'm, I'm going to go get him. I'm going to say, you owe me one. you got to come here and you got to help me with these folks because I can't disciple them all by myself. So Barnabas uh, does not go back to Jerusalem. He goes north, and I'm not sure what this is exactly. I think it's roughly 150 miles around the coast to Tarsus to look for Saul. And some of your translations maybe say uh, to seek for Saul. Uh, and that Greek word is a really good word. It's very descriptive. It means Barnabas had no idea where he was and he had to seek him out. He had to do a lot of work to find out where Saul was all these years later. Uh, but he is seeking him out and he found him and he brought him to Antioch. And I think another reason perhaps why he brought him to Antioch, and this will become very clear later in the book of Acts, that while it may start off Barnabas and Saul, later it's going to be Saul and Barnabas. And Saul uh, will prove to be the better teacher of the two. And perhaps Barnabas already knew that Saul was the better teacher. But it wasn't about Barnabas' reputation. It wasn't about being num- number one in the church at Antioch. It was about giving these people what, what they needed. And he's probably thinking, there's someone who can do this better than me. Some of you musicians know what the hardest position in the orchestra is to play. Anybody know? Second fill. <laughs> second fill. Everybody wants to be number one. No one wants to be second fill. Barnabas, I'll be second fiddle. I don't need to be number one. I just want these people to be discipled and to be brought up in the faith. And that brings us to our third point. Uh, the Word of God is taught. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Uh, they were there for a whole year. No mention of Barnabas going back to Jerusalem to report what had happened. Maybe there wasn't time for that. Uh, too much work in the ministry to do here. Uh, He didn't go south yet. He went north and got Saul and then came back and for a whole year. And often we think of Saul, you know, just going from church to church to church. But there were times, and we'll see this later in the book of Acts as well, there were times when he stayed at one place for an extended period of time. And he stays at the church of Antioch for an entire year with Barnabas, discipling all these new believers in the faith so that they could grow and mature so that this could become a strong church. And then we have this great statement And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Yeah, we have a new vocabulary coming into play. 
Uh, formerly, they're called disciples, believers, belonging to the way. Now they're called Christians. And most likely, at first, this was a term of derision. Uh, the unbelievers were probably looking at them saying, so you're followers of this Christ. You're Christians, huh? And they said, Christians, followers of Christ, lovers of Christ. Yes. As a matter of fact, we are. We are Christians. Thank you very much for the compliments. I can remember shortly after I became a Christian, um, I was working in a factory and some of the people there mocked me and, and they said, oh, you're, you're a preacher, huh? I remember going home and I told my, my mother, I said, I got the greatest compliment today. They called me a preacher. They thought they were mocking me. I thought, wow, what a, what a compliment. Thank you. These people are being mocked and they said, wow, what, what a compliment. We're followers of Christ. Now, here's the hard part. Do we live up to that name? That's a high calling, followers of Christ. We take Jesus' name upon ourselves. We are Christians. Do we act like Christians? Alexander the Great on one occasion was told that there was a man in his army who was also named Alexander. And he was a rotten soldier, unkempt, drunken soldier, just a disgrace to the army. And the story says that one day Alexander the Great went up to this soldier and he says, is your name Alexander? And he said, yes, sir. And he said, change your name or change your ways. Christians, we take Jesus' name upon ourselves. Let, let us reflect well in our behavior how, how we live. And then this last point, I call it the application of the Word of God. We're told that now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Uh, now, prophets in this era are not equivalent with Old Testament prophets. And I believe that the apostles and prophets uh, ceased to exist after the apostolic age. Uh, but regardless, the Holy Spirit does lead His people. Uh, we need to be open to His leading. And I think basically what's happening here is they've learned God's Word. A situation is arising and they're going to apply what they've learned about God's Word. And specifically in this situation, it has to do with taking care of needs among other believers. Verse 28 says, And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So obviously Luke is writing after this has already taken place so he can mention when it took place, uh, validating the historicity of this famine. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So they've been taught that we are to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. So it's fascinating that this need arises back in Judea, and they send many money back to Judea. And I think this helped make a connection between a predominantly Gentile church in Antioch and a predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem, so that even though they existed in separate locations, remember there's only one church, and this kept a bond between 
of believers. And notice that they're taking care of believers. We are our brother's keeper. Uh, we cannot take care of the world. We have responsibility to do all we can to help anybody in need. But first and foremost, we are to help fellow believers. Uh, there is a, a verse in Galatians that I find so helpful. Uh, Galatians 6.10 So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we have this circle of obligation. Uh, we can look at it. First of all, we have to provide for our own family. Paul says, he who does not provide for his own family is, is worse than an unbeliever. He has denied the faith. So we have to provide for our own family. And then from there out, as we're able, we are to provide for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we have a, a deacon's fund that we take up once a month. And then beyond that, we are to do good to all people as we have opportunity. But I think it's good to remember that order of priority. Because there are so many people that need help, and you can't help everybody. People call here at the church all the time, right, Dixie? Uh, asking for help. Uh, it's the economy. We cannot possibly help everybody. And it's good to know where, where do we start in helping people. Let, let's start with God's people. Let's make sure the church is strong. And then when the church is strong, we can go out from there, and then we can have an impact in the community. So I, I think that is so helpful. Now, I call this the application uh, of God's Word. Uh, we have one application. Uh, but I think we could also call this the incarnation of God's Word. Uh, it's true that we need to get into the Word, but we also need to get the Word into us so that it manifests itself in our lives and, and how we live. There's a, a great quote by J.I. Packer, and, and he uh, gives this quote especially to pastors, but it applies to all Christians. This is what Packer says. He says, How to communicate the reality of the God of Scripture across the temporal and cultural gap that separates our world from the world of the Bible has exercised many contemporary minds. It is not always noticed that God provides much of the answer to this perplexity in the person of the preacher who is called to be a living advertisement for the relevance and power of what he proclaims. And that is true of all Christians. Um, we should be an incarnation of God's Word. People should see what the Bible looks like when it's lived out in an individual's life. Robert Murray Machini uh, writes, In great measure, according to the purity and perfects of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents what God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister, we could say a holy Christian, is an awesome weapon in the hand of God. So if we want to be used mightily by God, if we want to be used in an awesome way, it's not just our gifts. It's not just our abilities. It's not just our intellects. It's not just our personalities, our charisma. It's our holiness. It's our great likeness to Jesus Christ that God uses. And He uses that because people will see it in our lives. And let's think of that very first 
verse in John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Isn't that amazing? God's Word, we're told, took on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you wanted to say, what does God's Word look like in the life of a person? We could say, looks like Jesus. There's the Word incarnate. And to a lesser degree, people are wondering about the impact of God's Word and they're looking at us. And we want to also to be incarnations of God's Word. We want to speak according to God's Word. We want to live according to God's Word. We were saying earlier, we want to have desires and affections that are in harmony with God's Word. We want God's Word to come out. We want it to ooze out of us. I think it was Spurgeon who said of John Bunyan, cut him anywhere. And he bleeds Bible. Part of his very being, it courses through his veins. We want that to be true of us. We need a mind of Christ which comes right here so that we can act as Christ acted and it starts right here. We cannot neglect this book and think we will grow as Christians. The Christian life is not a great mystery. God tells us how to live. And as we are people of the book, and we might even be mocked for that. Some have said that Christians are guilty of bibliolatry. (laughs) Bible idolatry. Guys, we're bowing down before a book. We're not bowing down before a book. We're bowing down before the God of the book. But this book is inspired. This book is special. We don't look at this book like any other book. This book can transform our lives. This book is guiding us. So we are committed to this book. Because we're committed to God. And God speaks through His Word. This is the voice of God. So to neglect this book is to neglect God. To be committed to this book is to be committed to God and what He has to say to us. And when we commit ourselves to this, it is amazing how our lives are transformed. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do indeed thank You for Your Word. Father, thank You for the power that is contained in it. Thank You for how it gives us knowledge and wisdom which we need because in many ways we are ignorant and we are foolish. Father, gives us strength which we need because we are weak. It helps us to be happy which we need because so often we are so sorrowful. It helps us to live a holy life which we need because we are sinners. Father, it provides us with all that we need. It contains the words of eternal life. So without it, we would perish. Without it, the nations will perish. So Father, may we grow in our love for Your Word. May we grow in our commitment of it. Father, may we live it out. And may we desire to see everybody on this planet with a Bible in their possession. In Jesus' name, Amen.